We come now to the highest point in our service, the highest form of worship, that is the preaching and listening of the Word of God. I'm going to take a minute and pray. I'm going to ask that God would give you ears to hear and He would give me clarity as we observe wonderful things from His law. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are amazed at the mercy with which you have visited us. And as we turn our attention now to listening to you, I pray that having had our hearts made right and having examined ourselves, we are eager to come to listen to what you have to say. And I confess to you, Father, in behalf of all of these people, that we are woefully inadequate and we need great strength, that we stand in awe of an amazing God whose word is so far above us and so broad and so high and so deep and profound that we come this morning really to scratch on the surface. Continue to unfold your unfathomable riches, as Paul said, to us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the Christian life is an amazing thing. As I think about what we're addressing this morning, it's filled with surprises at every turn. We're on a quest to know the God who made us and saved us, and it's an ever-increasing and ever-intensifying, awe-striking experience. There are times of great joy, are there not? There are times when we get so enraptured and captivated by the things of God that we want to leap out of our skin and think, it can't get any better than this. There are times of great joy. And then there's those times that are hard. We know all too well that a very formidable enemy opposes us. We know that we are constantly under attack. We know what it's like to fall down on the battlefield, to be wounded by sin. We've seen great victories and we've seen great discouragement and everything in between. And I don't know what brings you in this morning. I don't know whether you come in this morning at the height of one of those pinnacles where you are just saying, it can't get any better than this in my Christian life. Or if you feel like quitting. Oftentimes people disappoint us. Oftentimes we disappoint ourselves. Oftentimes we come and we we make a commitment and we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to apply this and things are going to be different and and I'm going to change. And then we become disenchanted when we get on the battlefield and we fail. And sometimes we start asking questions like, can I really change? Can God really produce change in my life? Is there transformation really possible or is it something that just makes good homiletics on Sunday morning? We start asking questions like, is it just going to be until we get to heaven and that's where the real jewel is? Is is this life, is there any joy possible in being a Christian? Is there any encouragement of all? Is God really going to press me into the mold of Jesus Christ, or is that kind of wishful thinking that will happen when God comes at the rapture? We start thinking like that. And we start even questioning whether or not the Scripture has the ability to produce change in us, whether or not it really is sufficient. And so we begin to turn to gimmicks and all kinds of other things and trying to fight the battle. And then we come to a passage like this. Then we come to a passage like the one that's sitting in front of us this morning. And I don't know about you, but have you ever had a time in your life where you maybe read a book or you came across something that you learned in Scripture and you knew that that very next moment, if you turned the page and read on, 
your life would change forever? You ever felt like that? Have you ever been at a point where you know that the truth you are about to read is so overwhelming that it's going to consume you? That's where I am. That's where I am. I was moving through a study uh, on our Sunday night series, Winning the War Within, and I, and I was looking ahead at a particular verse that I thought might be appropriate to launch from in our series. And I remember it was about 11 o'clock at night, and I was kind of restless. And I sat down, and I opened my Bible, and I was breathless at what I saw. Something I'd studied before, but really never cared to look too deeply at. And I found that God is a motivator. God is an encourager. God is vitally concerned that we have everything that we need in the Christian life. He gives us incentive to fight. And sometimes he takes us to those passages that arrest us. And we know that when we leave, we will never be the same again if we let God have that work in our lives. And that's where we are at this morning in Romans 8. I'd invite you to open your Bible and turn there. Romans chapter 8. Romans is my favorite book of the Bible. And I think Romans chapter 8 is sort of a crown jewel to the book. Paul, the apostle, is writing to this church in Rome, and he's writing to them so that they would be established in their faith. He's writing to them to give them basics of all that they need to live their Christian life. In fact, if you were to pick one book of the Bible that you were going to study that would be sort of the, the all-that-you-need basic guidebook, it's Romans. From theology to practice, Romans is so comprehensive. He talks about how to be right with God and then how to go on and live a life that is pleasing to God. And in this portion of the letter, around chapter 8, Paul is beginning to unfold for us this topic of sanctification. Sanctification is a big word that means holiness, this pursuit of holiness. Paul is talking to us about pursuing God and going hard after God and pursuing righteousness. And he's encouraging the believer that even though he's engaged in the conflict with sin, he's going to win. He's going to make it in the end. And by the time we get to chapter 8, he's talking about the Spirit of God. Chapter 8 really is the Holy Spirit's chapter. And he's talking about the, how the Holy Spirit affects this kind of change in the life of a believer. He describes how we're free in Christ, having once been enslaved to sin. We can obey. And everything that God has called us to in terms of being a Christian is possible through the Spirit of God at work in our lives. God, the Spirit, is proactively pushing us towards that mark. And then we read these words, starting in verse 12. He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer him, with Him so that we may also be glorified together with Him. Now, the key to understanding these verses goes back to chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Let me... Let me bring you into the very center of what Paul is saying, which undergirds everything else in this text. Verse 12, he says, we have an obligation. And specifically, our obligation is to put to death the deeds of the body. He says that our obligation now that we are free, now that we're in Christ, is to kill sin. Theologians call this killing of sin mortification. 
Hence the title this morning. Mortification is what theologians call this commandment of God in the scriptures to be hostile towards our sin and to kill it. Not to play with it, not to tease it, not to flirt with it, but to kill it. And everything else that he says in the passage undergirds this concept of killing sin. He says you have an obligation not to the flesh, but to kill your sin. And when I read this section, I asked myself, why? I mean, other than being a commandment, why should I kill my sin? I mean, I know I want to kill my sin, but is there anything here that gives me a motive? Is there anything here that gives me a reason? What's going to motivate me to have a wartime mentality with my sin instead of a peacetime alliance? Is there anything in the context that answers that question? And I looked, and there was. And the answers changed my life. Let me show you what it is. Notice what Paul says our obligation is to. Our obligation is put to death the deeds of the body. But he says right after that this little three-letter word that makes all the difference. It's the word for. Now, you and I know that when the author uses the word for, he's linking it back up to the previous statement. And he's giving a reason for why he's what he's about to say. I'll, I'll put it this way. He says, I want you to kill your sin because... And the answer is what is going to be for us the motive to fight. What is going to be the motive to kill. In other words, Paul is saying in verse 13 that we must kill sin. And the killing of sin is based on the truth in verse 14. And so if you get verse 14 right, you will kill your sin. You follow me? And what's that truth? Verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now you say, how am I led by the Spirit? Does the Spirit give me impressions about what to put on in the morning? Does the Spirit come in some still small voice and whisper in my ear? Specifically in the context, we're talking about the Spirit of God doing what? Helping us to kill our sin. Look back at verse 13. He says, you must die if you're going to live in the flesh, but if, what? By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then he goes on to say, because those who are being led by God this way are sons. They're sons. In other words, he says, this mortification of your sin is directly related to the fact that you are a son or a daughter in Christ, if you're saved. You will kill sin when you have a proper understanding of God as Father and you as a son. He could just have easily have said, put to death the deeds of the body and you will live because those who put to death sin are sons. And so then you ask another question, which I asked at 11.15. What does my sonship have to do with stabbing my sin? What's the, what's the carrot? What's the link? What's the catch? And then I saw another three-letter word following that said for, which also means because. And I said, he's going to tell me. He's going to tell me in verse 15 what the reason is, what the connection is between killing sin and being a son. Verse 15. Look at it. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
Now, in your Bible, the word spirit probably has, like it does in mine, a small s. Is that right? Does it, if you look down at your page. Small s, it should be capital. You can just take your pen and put a capital on there. That God has not given us the Holy Spirit of slavery. He has given us the Holy Spirit of adoption. And let me unfold this for you for a minute because I think it's so profound. The Spirit is described to us as relating to us in one of two ways. Either He is for us the spirit of slavery or He is for us the spirit of adoption. And Paul is clear in saying that if we're sons, He doesn't relate to us anymore as a spirit of slavery, which implies He once did. And you say, when did the Holy Spirit become a spirit of slavery. When was he for me the spirit of slavery? And the answer was when I was a slave of sin. When I used to be in bondage to my sin, he didn't enslave me, my sin enslaved me. But is it not, from John 16, the Spirit's work to do what? To convict the world of sin, and what else? And righteousness, and what else? And judgment. That is to say that the Spirit of God works in the lives of people who don't know God, who aren't sons, to convict them. And what He shows them is that they are in the pathway of judgment because of their sin. And they need a righteousness so desperate that if they don't get it, they need to fear. You see that? He says in the text, verse 15, if, the spirit of slave, if God is a spirit of slavery to you, then you have a reason to fear. Specifically, when we were lost, God intended to strike our hearts with fear of wrath. He intended to show us that we were fugitives against the justice of God. He intended to show us that His law was a threat. He took His law and He convicted you with it. He burdened your conscience and He weighed you down with the reality that you were a renegade. And so was I. And we had a reason to fear. And that one day we were going to be incarcerated because of our sin... And we were going to be facing an eternal sentence of hell forever. But you know what? The Spirit of God did this for a reason. To show you your need of what? Back in verse 15, adoption. The Spirit of God comes and He works in your life and He does this thing where He convicts you so that you see your need for a Savior And you see that you are sold in the slave market of sin. You see that you are under condemnation and wrath and that there is no way out and you are destined for thrashing. And then he comes and he reveals the Savior. And he opens your eyes to the truth. And he unfolds and brings you to the Father through Jesus Christ. And he burdens your heart not with a fear any longer, but with a cry for intimacy. Do you see that in the text? Do you see that? He burdens your heart with a longing to be intimate with the God who decided to pluck you out of your sin. And that's when God took my breath away. Watch the connection. Specifically here, what God does is he, Paul is calling you to kill your sin. Watch this. Because you are a son who does not relate to God as an angry, ogre, harsh threatening monster who's going to pulverize you for your sin, but as a loving father with whom he has invited you to be intimate. 
That's the difference. And the point is, is you will never kill your sin if you look at God as an ogre, if you're in Christ. You will never kill your sin if you run around thinking he's going to squish me like a grape. But you will kill your sin if you look at him as a loving father with whom intimacy is so great that you would kill anything that stands in the way. That's what he's saying. He relates you being a son, adopted as a son, into his family. Now, this idea of adoption is something that you're familiar with, I think. Our culture understands that. In fact, I'd be interested to know how many of you have either been adopted or have adopted. I'd just like to see your hands. Some of you are north and south. You know exactly what I'm talking about here. And the issue with adoption here, sometimes in our culture, we, we, uh, it's wrong, but people tend to look at people who are adopted as sort of second class. It wasn't that way at all in the Roman mindset. In the Roman mindset, if you were adopted as a son, all of your past, including your debts, were erased. Everything about your past identity that was, was corrosive and a shame to you has been erased and you have been put into a family. And you know what happened most times? Most times people, get this, fathers would adopt sons because they didn't find favor in their own sons. That's where the illustration breaks down with God. But they would adopt and they would actually bring the adopted son into his place. And they would put that adopted son as the primary recipient of all of the inheritance and everything. He would give him the top name and this son would step into the highest possible role. And it's true with us, isn't it? Isn't it true that God, when he looked at you in the slave market of sin, dead in your sins and trespasses, decided because of some reason, some reason known only to his love, to pull you out? And when he pulled you out, it was the cost of the blood of Christ, which we celebrated this morning. It was at the cost of Jesus Christ's blood to erase your past, to erase your sins and all the debts against you and to put you into his family as a son with all the rights and privileges there too. Is that profound? And so you know what I think about sin now? Forget it. I'm not living in sin anymore. That's what I was saved from, he says. He says that should be your motive. That should be your thinking. And there is a danger here because he intends to motivate you with this. He intends that you see this this morning. And there's a danger, though, in being a son. Because in being a son, it's very possible that we don't relate to God like this. That we can get up and thinking about God, that he's a tyrant, that he's an ogre, and that he's looming over us to crush us if we sin. And then we start obeying, rather than out of a heart of gratitude and joy and love, we start obeying out of what? Compulsion. Duty. We start saying, if I don't obey and do what I really want to do, then I'm going to get destroyed. And so I start looking for ways to commit my sin without my father seeing me. And I start thinking of how oppressive my father is and how he's, he's legalistic in putting all these commandments in my way. God is going to mash me into the ground if I sin. Sometimes we think. That's not true. Now let me guard you against another extreme that's possible. Sometimes we can flip to the other side and think of him as a, as a Hallmark father. You know what I'm saying? You know, you go to the Hallmark card and you can never find anything good for a, you know, a loving father. You always find these kind of emotional, sappy drips uh, you know, of a card that, that are you know, just, just 
ooey gooey, rich and chewy, and they don't have any substance to them. And we can kind of go to the other side and think, oh, God, come on, you're my pop. Why don't you hang out over there? I'm going to do my sin. I'll do my thing, and I'll call you if I need you, pops. You know, my old man, yeah, he doesn't like me to sin, but, you know. We can swing to the other extreme. We can begin to look at God either as this tyrant and this ogre, or we can look at him as this tolerant, gushy drip. And both are wrong. Both are wrong. And I want to show you this. Something profound that God took me through in my own quiet time. Back to Exodus. I want to show you this. Hold your finger in Romans. And go back to Exodus chapter 20. Now we're going to be back to Romans soon, so don't lose your place. But Exodus chapter 20 is such an interesting chapter. Because in Exodus 20, God has just given the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were there to show us our what? Our sin. They were to produce in us a fear of God. But I want you to see something that's very interesting right after the event. Look back down at Exodus 20, verse 18. This is after all that happened on the Mount Sinai. It says that the people below, verse 18, perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. Pretty awesome sight, is it not? Make a 4th of July fireworks show pale. And when the people saw it, they trembled. You would too. They trembled and they stood at a distance. Interesting. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will what? We will die. Hmm. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Do not have that kind of fear of God. Do not have the fear of God that you distance yourself from Him. Do not tremble before Him so that you never come to Him. On the contrary, he says, do not be afraid. Watch this. This is so interesting. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you. Now, isn't that interesting? Don't be afraid, but realize God did this so that you fear. You say, huh? Look at the next phrase. He wants you to have that kind of fear so that you do not what? Sin. He doesn't want you to think of him in such a way that causes you to stand away at a distance and not want to approach him. But he wants you to understand that he still is the holy God. And you have to have a reverence for him so that you don't sin. And that takes us back to Romans 8. That takes us back to the understanding that if you see God in the right way, you will have a proper fear that leads you away from sinning and to Him. This is the fear of God as a father. Now, you can motivate someone, can't you, to do something out of fear? You put a gun to their head? You can motivate them to do a lot of things if you're serious. If you threaten people and you terrorize people, you can get them to conform. But is that conformity the kind of conformity that God wants? The answer is no. The kind of conformity that God wants is a heart that says, yes, I want intimacy with you. It's a response as we read in the psalm this morning. You said, seek my face. And so God, I said, yes, I will seek your face. That's what I want. God's not saying, well, you know, you better obey or I'm going to line you up on the mouth of hell and kick you in. He doesn't say that. 
He says, in my presence is fullness of joy. And at my right hand there are pleasures better than the pleasures of sin. Intimacy with me, he says, is better than any sin that this world will offer you. He doesn't talk to his children like that, just like I hope you don't talk to your children like that. I hope you don't say, clean your room or I'm going to kill you. Maybe you do. And we'll have a time of invitation afterwards. You can come and repent. But you know, I fear, I fear most people don't have a clue what I'm saying about this. You know why? Because the idea of fatherhood is something that is vile. You think, God is my father. Yuck! I think I'd rather snuggle a syringe than get close to my father. And if you have that attitude of God, beloved, you will never be sanctified. I think that's Paul's point. I think what he's saying here is that God, even though he's going to discipline you for your sin, it's not punitive to destroy you. It's corrective so that you can share in his holiness. And in sharing in his holiness, share an intimacy with him. I think a lot of times fathers do an injustice to the view of God that their children have because they don't show them what God is like. They're one of two of those extremes. They're either passive and indifferent or they're harsh and dominant. Never the right fear of God. And the point is this. You will kill your sin because it kills you to sin. Did you get that? You will kill your sin because now that you're a son, it kills you to sin. And it means that there is no sin that you would rather have over a relationship with God and you cherish more than any sin the smile of God on your life. The affirmation that God is pleased. That is a motivation to obey. You see what I'm talking about? You see why I couldn't go to sleep? Go back to Romans. What I want to do with the rest of our time is unfold these cherished motives. I want to show you what Paul puts in front of us to keep us from sin. And specifically, I want to point out to you five precious promises to motivate you to kill your sin. Paul magnifies these. These five precious promises to motivate us to kill our sin, which arise from a proper understanding of God as Father. And these, beloved, will mortify you. Number one. If you change the way you view God as Father, he promises, number one, to change the way that you look at sin. He promises to change the way that you look at sin. And we've really already seen this, but let me point you back to the text in verse 12. He says then, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And he starts off by saying, So then, brethren, which tells you that he's in the middle of a discussion. And you can't understand the fullness of it until you understand the discussion. And that takes us back to chapter 8, verse 1. Look at it. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Watch this. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has done what? He has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do you find it interesting after he says he has set you free from the law of sin and death that now he tells you you're under obligation? It's kind of a funny thing to say to people who are free. You're under obligation. But it's not so funny when you think about what you're obligated to. And that is to put to death the deeds of the body. But see, if you look at God as a father, that's no problem. That's what I want. There is no problem with me putting to death the deeds of my body. I want to live 
forever with my Father. He says we are under obligation. Literally, we are debtors, but our debt is not to the flesh. Our debt used to be to the flesh. Amen? Our our debt used to be in bondage and captivity to the flesh. Look back at chapter 8, verse 7. He makes this point. He says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That was us. We were hostile towards God. For this kind of mind does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so if you are living a life of obligation to a consistent pattern of indulging the flesh, you and God are at odds with one another. You're hostile towards God. The law of God has no root in your heart. You have no desire to keep the law of God, and you couldn't even if you wanted to. That's what we used to be. And he says, we're free. We don't have that obligation anymore because we're sons. We're not slaves. We're sons. And our sonship has brought us into an obligation. Now, the word flesh here is the word not referring to our corporeal being, our our body, our hands, and stuff like that. The flesh here is referring to that inward bent towards sin, that inward tendency that even though now we're saved, kind of drives us back to sin. It's that unredeemed humanness. It's like my car. I have a Buick at home, and it has an alignment problem. And when I drive down the road, I have to hold the wheel like this to go straight. You ever seen those cars? You probably have one, don't you? And uh, it's a good illustration of the flesh. And I drive down the lane, and I'm struggling the whole way to stay in my lane. And that's what it's like in the Christian life. Even though I'm the driver behind the wheel, I'm incarcerated in this, in this car that's just going to take me to the ditch. If I let go or if I fall asleep at the wheel, But it's my responsibility now not to give in to the, to the pullings and the longings and the yearnings of the flesh to go to the ditch. It is my responsibility to hold the wheel and to keep myself straight on the road and get to where I'm going. That's the point. And when Christ saved us, he set us free from this bondage and free from this obligation to sin. But you know what he did? He replaced it. He replaced it not with a servile, hard obligation, but with a willing, longing for intimate obligation. To the degree that you in your life will not be fulfilled or satisfied if Christ is not glorified in you. You will not rest. You will not have peace. You will be frustrated if He's not glorified in your life. Because being God being glorified in your life is the most fulfilling thing that you can think about. And you never had that look before. You never had it. Until He saved you. And you might be struggling with that outlook today. You might look at sin and go, I I." I can't seem to break out of this sin. I am so entrenched in this sin, it seems like it's been forever since there's ever been a break in the pattern. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like, man, I've been here over and over and over again, and so what's the point? What's the point? The point is, is you don't have to live that way. You're a son or a daughter of the king. So you're not obligated anymore to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Your son's of the king. And look at what he says to those people who live lives consistently in the pattern of the flesh. Verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you must do what? You must do what? You must die. You must die. The word here for die talks about final, complete death. 
Eternal destruction. That's what we're talking about. If your life is characterized by this consistent indulgence in the flesh, then you are on the precipice of death and eternal wrath because sons don't live like this. Sons put to death the deeds of the body and what does, they say, what does he say happens to them? They live. They have eternal life. They have eternal life. Now, this is so interesting. Because you must see sin, according to Paul, as an enemy who will kill you if you don't kill it. Sin will bring about your death. You see that? That's what the passage says. You indulge the flesh, you die. But look at the play on words. So kill your sin. See that? Your sin will kill you if you don't kill it. So there's incentive, brothers. There's incentive to raise the bar. There's incentive to deal with holiness because... Not that I'm running from this wrath thing, but because I've been rescued from wrath. Because I'm a son and I'm free. That's what he's saying. You know what it is? It's having a mean streak in your Christianity. Do you have a mean streak? Probably more towards other people. Probably less towards your sin. Amen? You've got to have a mean streak. You have to have such a hostile and vengeful, murderous attitude towards your sin. That's what he's saying. Kill it. He doesn't say, bat it around, keep it in the closet and go indulge it when nobody's looking. He doesn't say that. He says, I want you to take the knife from your father and stab your sin. I want you, he says, to put it to death. That's a mean streak. And I think so often we have this peacetime mentality with our sin. We think, well, you know, as long as it doesn't cause too big of a ruckus, it's fine. My wife was at a bridal shower recently and she was sitting next to a friend that she was in college with and was in ministry together with at, uh, at our previous ministry and she was just catching up and so how you going and she has kids now and her kids are, are a little bit older and so they're working with their daughter on obedience right which you do hopefully and he works working with their daughter and they're saying we want you to verbalize that you understand the commands that we're giving to you we want you to affirm that you know what we said and that you're going to do it. So we want you to say either yes, mommy, or yes, daddy, to show that you understand. And if you don't understand, we want you to ask us and we will clarify. Good. And so they're trying it out. <laughs> and so the dad is with her. And the dad sits down and says, you know, I, I'd like you to go and I'd like you to, I'd like you to clean your room because, you know, you've strewn all your toys all over the place. And I'll never forget what my friend or what Jenna's friend told her. She said to, she looked up at her dad's eyes and she said, Ugh, yes, boss. <laughs> I thought, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what is that saying about her desire to obey? I'll do it, but I won't what? I won't like it. If I have to, you're a tyrant, you're mean, you're an ogre. I don't want to obey you, but I know that you're bigger than me. And the last time I didn't do that, it hurt. But see, that kind of motive for obedience is out of a heart of compulsion. It's out of a heart of, of anger and hostility, out of, out of threat and out of a wrong kind of fear. And you know what? If it's not from the heart, you and I both know this, that it is external behavior modification. And God wants true internal heart change. You know, I see this with people who don't like confrontational preaching. I see this, um, and if this is you, you're in danger. 
This is what happens. Sometimes people will leave a sermon where the preacher maybe exposed your bosom sin, and you walk out, you walk out and go, oh, what a legalist. What a legalist. Jack is so legalistic because he confronted my sin. You know what? If you have a mean streak in your Christianity, you should walk up to him afterwards and say, thank you for being harder on my sin than I am. Because God calls me to kill it. All you did was stick your finger and rub around. Thank you for being hard on my sin. Preach more! And if you don't preach confrontational sermons, Jack, we're going to dismiss you. I don't think that day would ever come. And I hope it never comes. Because we as sons have this longing in our heart to obey. You should plead with God to show you your sin. Because the word is not a threat any longer. The word is a guide and a friend to show you how to follow Christ. And when Jack gives you a convicting sermon, he intends for you to partner with the word and walk towards Christ in intimacy. Now, if we're going to kill our sin, we need to hunt it down. And we need to know where to look for it. We need to know where to find it. And verse 13 tells us where it is. Verse 13 says, I want you to put to death the deeds where? In the body. In the body. This is saying that sin will find itself at work in your body. In your eyes, what you look at. In your mouth, what you say or eat. Your feet, where you go. God wants you to kill sin if you find it anywhere in your body. Anywhere. Your hands, your intimate parts, anything. He wants it dead. He wants it dead. You need to kill it. And this is, I think, what Jesus had in mind in Matthew 5 when he said these words. Just listen to these words and let them weigh on you. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's what Paul is saying. If you see sin in your body, kill it. Because if you don't, you're on your way to hell. It's not salvation by works. It's salvation that proves, is proved by works. He goes on. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus takes sin seriously. And this is really the question that he's asking. Would you rather have your eye and sin in your eye or hell? Which would you rather have? You want sin or do you want your eye? You choose. Now, I see a lot of eyes this morning. Everybody's got hands for the most part. And here Jesus is saying, is he saying literally, you know, cut your hand off? Is he literally saying gouge out your eye? I think he's talking hyperbole, but he's making a serious point. Radically amputate your sin. If you find sin in your body, you know that sin is where? In your heart. And and a thief doesn't stop being a thief if you cut off his hands. He's still a thief in his heart. But what he's saying is have this radical vengeance against your sin that if you see sin anywhere, you kill the sin. It's no good to emasculate yourself to deal with your sin. Makes no sense because your heart is what God wants. And the only way that I know that I have sin in my heart is is if I see it where? Manifested in my life. And so God shows me, He gives me a window when I look at my life into my heart that says, You got a sin problem. 
and you need to deal with it. In fact, you need to kill it. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. You say, well, you know, it would be nice to destroy a sin in my life. That's really noble, Justin. Um, But I find myself not being able to do it. I find myself inadequate. It doesn't seem like I have what it takes to deal with my sin. Look on in verse 13. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the second motivating promise. And by the way, the rest follow after very quickly. The second motivating promise to kill sin is the Father will not only change the way that you look at sin, but He will supply you with His strength. He will supply you with His strength if you understand Him in this light. Because you are inadequate. But God has not left you alone in the battle to deal with it yourself. In fact, by His Spirit, He's given you everything that you need. Now think for a minute. What would you do if you feared God in the slavish sense? When it comes to going to God, are you going to go to God for anything? No. If you've had a, maybe you've been brought up in a home where, where your dad was very angry and violent, maybe he beat up the house, maybe he trashed the place, maybe he was an ogre at home. Did you want to go up and, hey, dad, have, can I have some money? No way. You'd rather do without, wouldn't you? You'd rather do without than have to go through the hassle and the frustration of dealing with the monster because you know if you ask him for the smallest thing, he's going to blow up in your face and get mad. God is not like that. God is not like that. And if you never go to Him for strength or for anything, you will never be sanctified because it's only by His strength that we get there. Jesus said it like this. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you, He says... Suppose one of your father, one of you fathers is asked by your son for a fish. Will you give him a snake instead? Or if he is asked for an egg, will he not give him a scorpion? Is he going to do that? You say, Dad, can I have an egg for breakfast? Here's a scorpion. Ah! Is your, is your father in heaven going to do that? No. Now listen to this next phrase. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Isn't that interesting? But if you don't look at God as a Father who is a giver of good gifts, you will never go to Him, and you will be left to your own strength. And instead of having the sword of the Spirit in the battlefield, you're going to be fighting with a fork. That's what you're left with. And you'll be blown away. And so don't look at him as a monster. Look at him as a father. If you're tempted to be anxious, for example, and you look at God as an ogre, you're not going to have the confidence that he knows what you need before you ask him because he's your heavenly father. Number three, we are motivated by his goodness as a father to go to him for anything because we know when we do, he will fulfill a third promise. And this third promise is so precious. He will satisfy your heart with intimacy. He will satisfy your heart with intimacy. Look at verse 15. You have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by, watch this, by which, why, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The same spirit who is at work in our life to kill our sin is inside of you, prodding you and provoking you to be intimate with the Father. He's, he's inside of you, and as He works in your life, He's motivating you to get close to God. 
And in so doing, He's motivating you to run from sin. That's what we're saying here. That's what we're saying. And look at the cry that we utter. It is the word Abba and Father. Now, what's interesting about this crying is that the word for cry is, is not, you know, uh, it's what my little daughter does. My little four-month-old daughter, God! She doesn't say dad. I think I hear dad in there somewhere, but, I, 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 you know, she's crying out for dad. And uh, the word here literally is scream, by which we scream, Abba, Father. Not by which we say in the morning, if I'm not too tired, uh, Lord. Instead of saying, good morning, Lord, it's, oh, good Lord, it's morning. You ever been there? Instead of looking at God as a father and crying out for intimacy, the word here talks about loudness and talks about fervency. That doesn't mean in your quiet times you need to be screaming. Please be sensitive, okay? But what we're talking about here is the fervency with which you in your heart, by the work of the Spirit, is welling up in, a lo- in your heart a longing for intimacy that only God can satisfy. It's amazing. Now, I like this cry, Abba, Father. You know what's interesting? Fourteen times in the Old Testament is all that this idea of Father appears ever. Fourteen times. I looked up all the verses. Fourteen times. Every single time, it deals with God not as an intimate Abba. You didn't call God Abba in the Old Testament. You didn't go there. It's always this transcendent creator. He's the Father of us all. And when you get to the New Testament... My search engine couldn't even count the number of times that God is referred to as Father, intimately of the believer. And I think that's on purpose. I think God waited until you and I understood how we can become intimate with God. And the only way we can become intimate with God is through whom? Jesus Christ. God wanted us to understand the fullness of what it meant to have a relationship with Him that is only available through Jesus And so when Jesus comes on the scene, and in Mark 14, he says, Abba, Father, because of what he's done in your life, you can cry the same. And you know what's encouraging about that? You never used to call him Abba, Father. You know who you used to call Father? John 8. Who is it? The devil. I love the root of this word, Abba. It comes from the, it's an onomatopoeic word. It's a a little baby who goes, Abba, 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 Abba. That's the idea. Ah, la, 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 la. It would be precious to the Father. But it was a term of endearment. And it became to know, you're calling him Daddy, intimate one. And it's funny, my little daughter is doing something now. It's really funny. She'll, she'll cry, and when we put her down, you know, there'll be times where she cries. She doesn't do it all the time. But she'll cry. And the other day, there's this funny thing. Um, I'm trying to be careful and kind of stealth how I sneak in because I don't want her to see me, but I want to make sure she's okay. You ever done that? I know you have. And so I, I open the door and she's crying and I'm sneaking in and she's got this little bumper pad around her crib, you know, and, and, and I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm coming in and I'm looking up over like that and she's got a dead beeline right on me. <laughs> and so I, I'm, I'm caught. So I walk in and I say, what's the matter? And she goes, <laughs> so cute. My heart melted. And I think it's a lot like that with us. We have this longing to be with our father. And her diaper wasn't wet. She didn't, it wasn't hurting. Nothing was wrong. She wanted, to, she wanted me to be around. And I think the idea is God has such an invitation, beloved, to intimacy with us. And the Spirit is prodding us and moving us toward that intimacy. 
And when we find that intimacy, there is nothing better. And you know, if I have that kind of intimacy, I can say no to sin. I can say no to sin. I can say, sin, you are offering me a pleasure that is going to take me away from my greater pleasure. Now I want you all to look right back there. You see Mark Sadal? You see his little girl on his shoulder? That's him right there. I was, I was looking at him during the service, and I thought, oh, that's so cute. And I, I thought, what is more sad? And I, I identify, because my daughter's four months, and I'm holding her, and there's nothing better than that. I mean, I could, you, don't, I, you can get rid of the TV. You can get rid of anything. I got all the entertainment I need at home if I got little, my little girl right here. And it's satisfying. Is it not satisfying? Do you love having that little girl on your shoulder? Amen. There's nothing better. And when it comes to our relation, I need you in the second service, by the way. Can you stay? <laughs> there is this cry for intimacy. But this cry for intimacy is a cry for holiness. Because you can't carry into your intimacy sin. You can't bring it in. He says, you either leave the sin at the door and come in, or you don't come in. Your choice. Your choice. What's going to motivate you when you're dead tired in the morning, laying in bed asleep, tempted to slap that snooze button instead of getting up and being intimate with the Father in quiet time? What's going to motivate you? When you're men tempted to look at internet pornography, what's going to motivate you in that moment? Is it going to be intimacy with the Father, or is it going to be this image? You know what? If you value your intimacy with God, you will say, Father, hand me the knife. Hand me the knife. I want intimacy more than that. More than that. It's reaching the point where I would do without anything except God. And so the Spirit helps us. And He brings a fourth promise that He makes if you view Him as Father. Number four, He will deepen your assurance of sonship. He will deepen your assurance of sonship. Verse 16, he says, The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me just give you simply what Paul is saying here. Whenever the issue of assurance comes up in the Bible, it never calls you to look back on some event, some prayer, some aisle, some whatever. It always calls you to look at what? Today. The fruit in your life. It always calls you to look back, not to a moment of decision, but the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And when the Spirit, watch this, when the Spirit of God is working in your life, and he is producing fruit, that is confirmation that you're a son. But your confirmation of a son is what motivates you to bear fruit and kill your sin, which pours gas on the fire. Because of your sonship, you're motivated to kill your sin, but the more you kill your sin, the more that the Spirit of God gives you that assurance and confidence that that's what you need to be doing. And the more and the more he pours the gas of assurance on the flame of your devotion, you kill your sin all the more. It's interesting, in legal terms, in Roman law, the adoption required seven witnesses to verify that this person truly had become a son. And you know what's neat? Is the sevenfold spirit of God is our witness. But let me ask you, look back down at your text. Who is he witnessing to? Who is he testifying this to? Is he telling everybody else, no, I, I, I'm sure he's a son. Who's he testifying to? Me and you. Why? Because we need that assurance. We need that assurance. Because if I lose my assurance because of sin, I lose my motivation to fight. And I just give in. And I just roll over. I just quit. 
If I don't have this confidence that I look at God intimately as a father, I'm going to quit. Put it to you this way. How would you, how would you feel if you were struggling in a class and you went to the teacher for help? You're failing the class, much like we fail our Christian lives sometimes. And you go to the teacher for help and the teacher, you say to the teacher, listen, I'm struggling I'm not sure if I'm going to pass this class. Can you help me? And the teacher says, why bother? I mean, you're not going to pass. You have an F. I can show you my grade book. Why don't you just drop out of school? You're going to get in there and, okay, I'll take my final now. Sharp my pencil. No. No. Compare that to what if you went into your teacher and your teacher said, I'm struggling. And I'm not sure if I'm going to pass this class, but I want to pass this class. I want to finish well. I want to, and I, I haven't been doing well. And the teacher says to you, I'll help you. I'll help you. Don't worry. I've seen your grades. I've seen your work. And I know exactly what you need. And I'm going to work with you after class. And I'm going to spend time with you. And you're going to pass that test on the first take. I'm going to make it happen. I'm committed to you. Who do you think is going to pass the test? Duh. Right? person who has assurance that that person is committed to them. And every time we obey, God brings assurance into our life that we are his sons. He testifies to us so that we are more motivated to obey. And finally, number five, he takes you to the end. Number five, he lavishes you with your eternal reward. He lavishes you with eternal reward. This is in verse 17. And if children heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Let me just put it like this. To be adopted into the family means that you receive everything that an adopted son has. And to be a son is the synonym with being an heir. You get everything that you are entitled as a son. And you say, what's that? What am I entitled with? He says, well, you are heirs of God. Everything that God has promised you and everything that God is. That's yours. That's yours. And he says, more than that, you are fellow heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ inherits, what does he inherit? Everything. You reign with him. That's why Hebrews 2.11 says, he is not ashamed to call you his brother. Isn't that precious? You are a son. Not the way that Jesus is a son. Jesus is a son by nature. You are a son by adoption. And you know why I think Paul put this in here? I think he put this in here to motivate us to say, hey, listen, it's worth the wait. You can say no to all the passing pleasures of sin, all the the allurements to go away for ease and comfort. You can have eternal reward. You will be drenched in eternity with eternal reward if you kill your sin. If you kill your sin. Because that's what he said earlier. He says, if you are killing your sin, you're going to live. And I'm telling you, you're going to live. But not only are you inheriting blessing, you know what else you have to inherit? Verse 17. If we what? Suffer. You think it's going to be easy? No way. You think killing your sin is fun? You think it feels good? No. But it's worth it. It's worth it. I want the presence that brings fullness of joy in the right hand in which there are pleasures forevermore. But you know what? Because I'm a son, I'm willing to wait for that. 
I'm willing to say no to the passing pleasures of this world in order to have what will never, ever fail me. The bloodiest our American soil ever got was in the Civil War, where the freedom of slaves was purchased. Lincoln issued the Emancipation of Proclamation where he described the rights of slaves and prescribed how they were going to be treated and how they were going to be cared for and what their new life was going to look like. And what followed was known as the period of Reconstruction, where this building back together of America in a whole new way took place. And you know, something very bizarre happened. In this Reconstruction era, the slaves that were freed and given all the rights and privileges of freedom by the President of the United States were met with difficulty. Pioneering a new life was hard. The life they had now was much more difficult. Walking in freedom was much more challenging than being a slave. And so you know what a number of slaves did? They went back to their slavery. And you say, all these people spilled their blood to make you free so that you would go back to being a slave. You know what? God sent His Son Jesus to spill out his blood so that you would be free. And you know what we do? We walk back. And instead of walking in freedom, we put the yoke of slavery on again because it's easy. Because sin offers us pleasure. And my urgent plea, my, I'm begging you to walk in the freedom that you have as a son. Let's pray. Father, we need help for the rest of our lives to know exactly how to do that. And we're looking to you, and we see how great a love it is that we have been lavished by, that we should be called sons of God, and such we are. And we stand breathless at your love. We stand unshackled, and now look to you as our spirit, as our leader, to show us how to walk in freedom. Work your work in every heart, however it needs to be done. In Christ's name, amen.